Greetings and welcome to the Pure Report. I'm your host, Rob Ludeman, and it is time to bring the orange with two exciting guests today, Dr. Howard Rubin, founder and CEO of Rubin Worldwide. Howard, welcome to the Pure Report. Great to have you. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be part of this today. Um, we thank you and making a triumphant return, Kaz, John Colgrove, founder at Pure Storage. Kaz, welcome back. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us again. Well, thanks for inviting me back. Happy to be back with you. Ah, always love to always love to hear from you, Howard. I'll turn attention to you. Just if you don't mind, do a quick introduction, overview of Ruben Worldwide. You know, kind of the origin story. I'm I'm interested in, and and how'd you really get get involved into kind of the deep study of of the economics around technology? Okay, so the the background actually has two sides. I'll, I'll do the quick version, but all right. Uh, been a professor, was a professor for about 30 years of computer science and got intrigued in the 1980s that technology would change everything about us in different ways. It wasn't as pervasive as it is now. So I started collecting data on technology and what I call technology economics. And I really wasn't sure why. And I started amassing this stuff. But then number two, I have a weird background with doctorate in computer science and oceanography. So you do natural science, you do field work. So in addition just to collecting data, I started collecting companies like Islands of the Galapagos and trying to figure out who had technology beaks and who didn't. So I've been doing that for about 30 years and ended up with this massive database at the same time the world has sort of converged on having a technology economy. And uh, then that with Ruben Worldwide really supports companies like Gartner mainly and uh, in the world of benchmarking. Because a friend of mine at the Harvard Business School said after me doing this for about 10 years, he says, well, well, you got all this damn data. Why don't you start benchmarking? And I said, what is that? And he explained that to me. And we started publishing a worldwide benchmark report, looking at thousands of companies around the world. And today that database is alive. So I sort of have a eye in the sky where I watch the big technology trends versus business and society. And then at the same time, you know, visit companies and across 20 sectors and see what they're doing and how it's changing the way they work. So it's a two-sided perspective, but it's been a lot of fun. Well, super interesting too to be able to have collected all that data and then realize, oh, there's there's some really interesting things that we can go off, yeah, that right. you can go off and 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 do with that. Uh, thanks for the intro, appreciate it. Kaz, welcome back to you and a blatant plug for the uh, the episode that we did. Oh gosh, it, it seems like forever ago since it's been in 2020, but um, great two part interview. If folks want to go back and listen to that, how are you doing? Holding down the fort out there in uh, out there in Mountain View. Things going all right? Oh, doing fine. Uh... You know, kids are uh, back in school, virtual school. Virtual, of right? We're all doing and, that. Um, you know, I'm sitting here wondering, are they ever going to actually meet anyone in person ever again uh, <laughs> at this point? But uh, now we're doing fine and uh, continuing to move forward. Have you gained any interesting or new perspectives throughout the pandemic? Any Anything you've learned about yourself or, uh, you know, with all the time you've been spending there in Mountain View? Um. No, I don't know that I'd uh, say I've gained any particularly new perspectives there. I, I suppose I continue to um, watch the way different organizations are trying to handle uh, what's going on with amazement at how poor a job some of them do and <laughs> some of the good ideas that some people have. Um, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm shocked at how well, I mean, for all of my complaints as a parent about virtual school, I'm shocked at how well it's working. Um, I still have a lot of complaints about it. 
but I'm shocked at how well it's working. There's, uh, yeah, they're certainly there. And as, as, as a spouse uh, of a first grade teacher who I'm listening to in the other room, teaching her class virtually at home, uh, I agree with you. Similar aspects that she finds really easy compared to the normal in-class, like behavioral things, and others where there's certainly room for improvement. But ultimately, I think we're all doing the best we can, right? Yeah, it's, and it's, you know, and, you know, for, 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 you know, us, it's like, okay, yes, it's an inconvenience. It's just that, I mean, I, you know, I continue to think of all the, you know, small businesses that are, you know, it's amazing to me to watch how government with all their policies is hurting small businesses so much and advantaging giant businesses. Mm -hmm. And that's going to have an impact for many years to come. And then, of course, you know, what, what about the kids in high school who are going to spend like, you know, a year or even two years uh, or something in school from home and then they're expected to go off to college uh, when they're losing a lot of their training in independence? Uh, yeah. So that'll have some interesting implications over, you know, many years to come. Uh, I agree. I think we'll have a lot of long-term implications to, to yes. look back upon. Uh, and speaking of implications, you know, I'm going to shift gears to the, to the topic of what, uh, what we're all going to be discussing today, which is really, you know, we're trying to provide guidance here for enterprises and organizations to, to kind of master data and storage economics. Uh, and Howard, you mentioned, you know, up front, that you, you've had all this data that's been gathered over time and this sort of unique perspective uh, around, you know, data growth and tech spending. Um, but, you know, what's going on? What, what, what do you see right now relative to the economies of scale? And there's a really interesting aspect uh, relative to, to Moore's Law and sort of, the, sort of the declining influence or Moore's Law no longer hanging up. But what's the backdrop here that, that makes this a really important topic? Yeah, I think n number one, if you if you look at this in the abstract, like the way I've been looking at this in, from high altitude over the years, you start to find that the companies that are spending the most on technology are the companies that are most data intense. And by that, I mean, you start looking how much data they have per employee, how much data they have per custom, how much data do they have per, per million dollars of revenue, whatever you want. And you can start to look at what you might call data intensity. Mm. And you brought up the notion of economies of scale, uh, the couple of different forces. Number one, data growth is a higher rate than technology spending grows. So in fact, there's an interesting force over there. So data is growing like weeds. And you know, Cosmes made a comment even about the pandemic. I mean, data is in the news every day. Imagine what's going on with healthcare and everything else and forgetting about politics, government policy is being based on this. People are trying to manage by micro clusters. So you can imagine even now with government and the whole health sector, how much more intense and how much more important is data is than ever before. And there's some other interesting relationships that underlie because when you got data, you got to process it. And right. it turns out that, you know, underlying this, if I look at a real macro group view, a three X growth in data, greater data intensity grows by a factor of three. It usually means you need about nine times more computing power. So the conundrum is how the hell do you afford all this? I mean, you can't grow your computing power at that rate and, manage your tech expense. So what's now, what's clear now is data growth is outstripping the ability of organizations under the existing models hmm. to be able to maintain their finances. And you asked about Moore's law and a simple crossover point is as soon as data growth 
per year exceeds the rate that Moore's law helps you reduce your costs, your total cost is going to go up. So, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think of a toilet paper model for that right now, but, you know, you end up buying a thousand rolls of toilet paper when you only need 50. Your total cost of toilet paper is going to go up. Even if toilet paper unit cost goes down and hit a floor, but it'll never get cheap enough that you can get a thousand rolls for the cost of 50. So that's a totally ridiculous model, but that's what's going on with Moore's law. And the real death of Moore's law probably occurred about three years ago when the rate of growth of data in industry exceeded Moore's Law's influence in reducing costs. And that hit particular industries very hard. I mean, strangely enough, if you look at the top four most data intensive industries as measured by terabytes of data per million dollars of revenue or a whole bunch of other measures, it would be no surprise that media and entertainment is up there with streaming and everything else. But number two is banking and finance. And in the top four, you have healthcare. Yeah. And you go back in time, it just didn't look like that. Healthcare was low, data is the forefront in healthcare. Banking and financial services crunched basic stuff, but there was no analytics, and media and entertainment was totally different. So I'm sorry for the long story, but the 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 the, the key point to think about is the data intensity of various sectors. What happens when you have more data? What do you do with it? What does it cost to do with that? And how does the growth of data relate to the unit cost of data as that moves over time? And where does Moore's law almost become irrelevant because you're growing so much faster than cost is going down? So you hit a wall and you have to manage things differently and you have to look for new models and you have to look for new technology. No, no, no worries on the, you know, the longer story. It's great to get the, the perspectives around that and just that the digitization of everything is, is really driving that, but really interesting that some of the interest industries that were less impacted are now more impacted by, uh, by what's going on. Cause how do, how does that influence what we do from a product development standpoint? I mean, obviously, back at the beginning of Pure, there was no doubt we were looking ahead at at massive data growth, and there were some decisions, you know, made around the the, the development of the product at that time. And I'd love to hear about that. But also, as we go forward, what are, what are some of the things that you know that we look at or that we've developed that that really go to try to address this issue? Um, yeah, you know, I think there's a, a couple of things. One uh, interesting observation that I have on, on what Howard was saying, you know, media and entertainment has generally been a lot of streaming video and a lot of lower cost data, right? They've always had massive, massive uh, data farms that they had at a very uh, low cost per byte. Um, you know, the other industries, healthcare and banking and finance, They've always had tended to have more, uh, more processing intense data, higher cost data, where they've had more performance demands on. And you know that's something that, that, that that's always been true. Uh, high throughput mm. has always been cheaper to acquire than low latency. Uh, and so one of the things uh, that you know you want to do as the data continues to grow is to really get a good understanding of how are you gonna use this data? What kind of storage do you need for that? And how do I move the data uh, as it goes through its life cycle from my more expensive, uh, you know, access intensive, low latency to the capacity, uh, you know, cheaper and deeper storage. And then, so that's something that's becoming, as the data continues to grow, a more and more important uh, in managing the data. 
almost a data locality based on cost per, which which almost leads us into, you know, Howard, I want to go into some of the some of the myths that may be floating around out there around data and storage economics. It's almost related to what Cause was just talking about, right? Which, I, you know, let's take myth number one, that true storage cost is just a dollars per gigabyte acquisition that is amortized over time. When you've looked at this, what's what's really the reality for total cost of ownership? Yeah, the, the reality of it is pretty, is, is very interesting because if you look at the total cost of maintaining storage, I mean, you got hardware, you got software, you got people, you got space, you got disaster recovery, you got all the connectivity, you got all sorts of pieces. Storage only accounts maybe for 50, the acquisition cost as you describe it, only accounts maybe for 50% of that stuff and that changes depending on the way you depreciate it or how you treat it accounting wise. So even if storage hardware was free itself, there would still be a cost if it was given to you. So mm -hmm. it's like a, you know, the gift that keeps on giving or the gift that keeps on costing. So in fact, it's an absolute myth that if you just look at the unit cost of the hardware piece itself, the acquisition cost, it's the care and feeding and the software around it. And I think one of the most interesting facts is, I mean, with advanced storage management and things you folks do, I mean, software is becoming a much more important component of what's going on in managing smart and adaptive storage over time. So hardware is an interesting piece, but it's, What's around it that makes it work, contributes value, how you protect it, ensure security and everything else, contributes about half that cost. So unit cost of a piece of hardware, you see these thumb drives, everything else, they look cheaper and cheaper. Well, this is not industrial strength stuff that you have in a data center, the companies that are running our government, our banking, and even our music industry, there are other costs around it. So it's only looking at a piece of the cost that gives you the illusion that the true cost of storage is a dollar sign per gigabyte of acquisition amortized over time. Yeah, I mean, it's an easy metric to derive, but it's by no means a, a complete uh, metric. Um, Cause, what, what's, what's your position around this? I mean, you engage with a lot of enterprises on behalf of Pure. Is there, is there an, an aha moment that, that our customers or users or prospects have when, when you're able to get through about the, the real TCO to help them understand, you know, is there an understanding of something like Evergreen, for example, which, which really goes to the heart of this? Um, you know, I don't know if there's necessarily an aha moment for a lot of them, but um, you do see this in different organizations. They have, uh, you know, in some organizations, the guy running the data center doesn't pay for any of the utilities. So he's like, I don't even want to think about that. It, I don't care. Yeah. And the enlightened companies, the enlightened organizations, you know, they do develop a real, you know, look at the true cost of ownership over time. And, you know, to exactly Howard's point, the, the acquisition of the storage is, is only one part of it. The, you know, how much use are you going to get out of it? How efficient will it be is a big part of it. You know, if I can run my storage at 20% full versus 80% full, hey, I've just gained, you know, four times as much efficiency out of it. And organizations struggle to do that. And, you know, some of the things we've talked about, like Evergreen, they allow you to get more out of it because you don't have to plan way ahead. You can buy what you need today and then grow as you want. Um, you know, one other thing I'd, I'd actually mention on a slightly different tangent uh, related to this myth is the myth of solid state storage versus hard drives, hmm. right? If you think about a hard drive, right? 
it has gotten so cheap that the sheet metal I put around it when I slide it in costs almost the same amount as the hard drive. The power to run it over its lifetime costs about the same amount as the hard drive. And so even much more so than in the past, the actual cost of the media is becoming a smaller and smaller component of the of the total because that sheet metal doesn't get cheaper over time. Yeah. And that power doesn't get cheaper over time. And so people do have to look at who's going to run it. How hard is it going to be for those people to run it? How efficient are they going to be? How much stuff am I putting around my storage? What does it cost me to power it? And all of that over many years. And yeah, it means that the actual cost of the bikes is becoming a smaller and smaller thing. That's one of the reasons we've continued to focus on solid state storage because you know, we just see disks as becoming less and less relevant in workloads because the cost difference between solid state and a disk matters less and less over time. Yeah, interesting, interesting perspectives. And thanks for adding a little bit more detail on that. Let's shift to myth number two, Howard, back to you. And, and it is about shifting, uh, but there's a perception that shifting from on-prem to uh, to private cloud, we won't go right to public cloud yet, but to private cloud is is challenging and expensive, and therefore going to public cloud is the only way to benefit. And that's interesting because it feels like this was prevailing wisdom maybe seven, ten years ago, right? Which was you know everything on prem just needs to go to public cloud, and don't worry about your private cloud initiative. Um, you see this as a myth in in what you've researched. Yeah, and a couple of pieces, and just going back to. Kaz's point, I just, you know, he's talking about kids and stuff. An example of the storage is I just remember, uh, you know, adopting animals. My wife was a vet technician and you, you, you adopt a, a cat and you adopt or a hamster. And I just remember we had a hamster named Amy Rebecca and I always described it as the mouse with a hundred dollar house. You adopt the thing, but the house to do it, you know, just, just killed us. But that's, that's why I said, it. you know, Kaz makes the point, if storage itself, the pure media was even free, what you have to house it is a whole lot. And just for reason bringing that up, you know, myth number two is, you know, the, the, the myth that transforming, you know, to private cloud is difficult and expensive and going to public cloud is the only way. Well, if you look at even the press, you look at things that companies like Bank of America and others have done, it's, it's not about being anti-public cloud. It's in fact, you think of the barriers to public cloud in many ways with the, the security and the regular regulator stuff, regulatory stuff in various industries and things like that. There's some learning you can do about cloud, but if you do about cloud internally with a private cloud, you can still keep it in the wrapper or the envelope of what you need for cyber uh, and the regulatory needs you have. Uh, if you're worried about control of stuff, you still have it there. But number two, you can learn a lot. And folks that I've worked with that you know describe themselves as you know building private cloud, they've been able to achieve smartly the economics of the hyperscalers, so they don't get all the advantages are pay-as-you-go basis, but they can learn about the cloud, they get to the cloud, and then they can figure out more about how to migrate and make better choices going to public cloud. So in fact, the transformation process and the leap seems to be much harder to go to public cloud. And even before I wrote the, uh, the, this last paper, we took a look at you know, 1,500 companies worldwide, and of 1,500 companies worldwide, 60% of them had no public cloud presence. That's, that's so hard to get there. 
So you could read the myths about it. You think like everybody is going to cloud. You take 1,400 companies, 1,500 companies across 20 sectors and you find out what's going on. 60% of them aren't doing anything cloud and maybe 10% of them have more than 25% of their stuff in the cloud. So cloud pervasiveness isn't what it seems like in the press. It's not about a bad thing, but the companies that have made the most leverage of cloud have moved to private cloud models, look at the base economics they need, learn a whole lot, and then they have a departure point to going to public cloud. It's not the only way, but getting a, and you hear about, about hybrid cloud strategies right now, the companies I've seen that are most successful have gone along that route. And the data just shows you can't get from here to there so cleanly, and that's why, you know, that's such a high percentage of companies aren't doing anything on the cloud. And it's, it's amazing to find that out because everybody talks about cloud, 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 cloud. Well, it's just not out there the way you think it is. Yeah, and I, I actually prefer to remove the word cloud, which which has great appeal in the press and, and for marketing purposes and and instead really focus a little bit more on as a service, right? If you can right. service internally in an on-prem type environment and you learn how to do that, certainly you can then move to a hybrid model or shift certain things to public where you're also doing as a service and we just sort of abstract that word that word cloud out. Um, cause anything to, to add on to this? I mean, we, Pierre's done a great job and you know, particularly in the VMware space over time and in helping folks build successful private clouds. But what's your, what's your take on this one? Um, well, I think uh, your remark about a service is absolutely correct. Right? What people like about the public cloud is they're buying a service and they're saying, they're buying an outcome, right? They're saying, I want this service, it's gonna deliver this and, and such. Now, I think for larger organizations, they that have the scale, they can develop the efficiency and actually, in most cases, do a better job of doing that uh, within themselves in the private cloud. For tiny companies, you know, small mom and pop shops, uh, you know, startups with only a few people, their, their scale is so small, the public cloud makes great sense. But the public cloud's a tool like anything else. And mm -hmm. when you use it for the right things, uh, you get great results. When you try to do everything there, well, it's just like when I have a hammer. If I have a screw instead of a nail, it doesn't do a good job, right? So, you know, it's all about use the public cloud for what it's great at and be good at being efficient with your own private cloud. And what you're really then doing is you're transforming IT. You're delivering a service to the rest of the business internally as opposed to buying a service externally. It's all about the service. Makes sense. Yeah, and the right tool for the right job, right? As there, there, there certainly are the right things. I have to, I have to bookend the if you gave it away free thing because the way we always did it when I worked in Serverland was, you know, is it free like a beer? No problem, just drink it. Or is it free like a puppy? Kind of like your hamster, Howard, right? Where yeah. here's a free puppy, but wow, it costs a lot to feed this thing over time and uh, vet visits and all that. So just yeah. bookending that one with <laughs> with the one that I used to recall. And free bear doesn't help you if you don't have a mug to put it in. No, very true, very true. Yeah, unless you, you got get a, a beer bath. Pour it in with, you know, with hose. We, we, it's we, like Gatorade at a Super Bowl game. Exactly, yeah. okay. exactly. Yeah. All right, myth number three, and it, it, it dovetails closely with the one we were just describing. I'll brings a little bit of the private out or it's more on on-prem, but um, the, the notion that public cloud is a more agile or cost-effective and reliable way 
to deploy on-prem, and therefore everybody should be cloud first. Again, as Cause was just saying, Howard, it's really more of a your mileage may vary or use the right tool for the right job, right? Yeah, exactly right. And again, you know, the defense, I, I talked about companies being able to achieve the, you know, the capabilities, economics of the hyperscalers. I mean, not, not everyone can pull that off. So there are different paths to the cloud and some of it is very situational. But when you look at companies that have the, the two options of having to gone private or public, you find the guys that have actually done their private public, they've done their hybrid cloud transformation. In terms of the raw economics, they've achieved capabilities of more computing power at a, a, a ma with major economic leverage. I'll talk about the out of service in a business. And the, out of, the economic benefit is probably on the order of 20 to 50% higher than those that direct, went direct to public cloud because they understand the economics. Mm -hmm. They understand what Kaz was talking about the service model. They understand the outcomes of, of, of what, what they're getting. And I, I know, you know we have another myth in there about public cloud is the only way to get a pay per use flexibility for infrastructure. That's not true because it's not the only way to get that because you can work with vendors such as Pure and things like that. The idea of the as, as a service model, you have to think about what the heck does as a service mean? So as a service means you're paying for an outcome. Underneath that outcome, you might be paying for your go, go and you're supplying the service. So the service provider is worrying about the upgrades and all these other things underneath the cover. So I'm blending a whole bunch of stuff together, but there are a lot of pieces and there are a lot of moving parts in this and that takes on the, you know, the myth is public cloud is the only way to go. No way, you can become cost effective and the companies that are more cost effective have done the hybrid approach where they sort of, I guess, mix, mix the punishment and the technology crime they're about to commit with their systems. I don't know if that's the way to put it, but they're mix matching at both ends. Number two, they can get the pay per use flexibility internally by making the right choices, working the right vendors and choosing the right services and it doesn't have to be public cloud is the only way to do that. And then the other interesting piece is that you put all this together and this relates to something we talked about at the beginning is, you know, what is the underlying economic model you need for technology in the future mm -hmm. and even the current time? And, and, and the last point I'll make, because I don't want to harp you know, on, on what we've learned from COVID, but companies needed to have highly resilient computing with a highly agile economic structure that floats up and down at the speed of business. So as a service, we'll give you a view where you can not only have variable costs, but those variable costs can be highly responsive and move at the speed of business. And that's what companies are learning right now. They can't predict business volatility exactly, but they can prepare for it. So they have to get the best possible economics internally. They have to pick platforms based on their business outcomes, and they have to have a model underneath it with a service model is the best possible example because it handles all these things. I'm using up all my time here, but going back to the earlier point that, that that, that you made yourself is they don't know what the total technology cost is yeah. because they don't know what total means. So what do you measure end to end? And Cos brought that up too. So companies need to be able to understand the basics of their technology economics. They need to understand the total technology cost. They need to understand the outcomes they're going with and that'll help them determine the path which they need to take. So just to jump to public cloud isn't the only answer, just like distributed uh, was it, what was a client server wasn't the only right. answer yeah. and distributed computing wasn't the only answer and mid-range wasn't the only answer and mainframe wasn't the only answer. So it's, it's just a whole interesting when you go back through the history of this stuff, there's no single answer that's good for all times.
Yeah, it's causes hammer and screw kind of thing, right? It's the, the, the right tool for the right job. And let me bring out Myth 4 since you wove it in there so yeah. nicely. And Myth 4, you know, again, dovetailing on, on Myth 3 is that public cloud is the only way to get pay-per-use flexibility for infrastructure. And, um, you know, cause if I mix Myth 3 about public cloud being more agile and cost-effective and that cloud is the only thing to do as a service, I'd say if I look over the last couple of years, some of the most interesting and, and more dynamic announcements and things we've done at Pure have really gone to both better enabling organizations to understand these trade-offs on the spectrum for not only hybrid cloud, but also for as a service, you know, pure as a service, things like cloud block store, uh, snap to cloud, right? I mean, there's these, these different things that we're trying to invest in and do that enable companies to realize and understand the right economic model, depending on what they're trying to accomplish. Well, you know, I think, I think underlying all this is um, a basic capability that Howard referred to, it's agility, mm, right. right? You don't know the future. So you want to be able to adapt, to adjust, to be as efficient as possible uh, over the long run. And it's really all about agility. And you know, you can get agility by paying for the public cloud. You can get agility with things like Pure as a Service, where you, know, you can just say, I wanna pay for this many terabytes of you know, this kind of storage. And oh, by the way, if in six months or a year, I change the kind of storage I need, guess what? It's a service. I can just adjust it and I take the same commitment, the, the, the same terabytes I was paying for, say, on block storage, I move them to object storage. I move them from low latency to high throughput. Um, you know, I move them, you know, I can move them from performance to a higher capacity at a lower cost per terabyte. And all those transformations are, are, are true there. The other thing that goes with it is the kind of evergreen technology that we've always built at Pure. Yeah. Prior to Pure, you'd buy technology and it would get obsolete after a few years and you'd junk it. And when you buy using an evergreen model or the as a service model, the technology just stays there and keeps evolving and working in place. You don't have downtime, it just gets newer and better all the time. And you know, it's kind of like now, you know, hey, every year I get a new phone uh, just, it takes a few minutes to swap out to the new phone and then one of my kids gets the old phone. So they appreciate that too. Always um, good. And you know, you know, it's, it's very different than if you think back when cell phones first came out, you remember your first cell phone. Do you remember that when you got your second cell phone, you got to re-enter every contact. Every single thing. Because there was no way to transfer. Right. It, it, it just... You know, that's what it's like to change technology with some vendors on premise. And that's why people think cloud is the way to go. But with Pure and, you know, as an example, and with other modern vendors, you know, it's a service. It's an evergreen, adaptable, upgradable thing. And so when you have evergreen, when you have as a service, there's no reason to make big commitments or fixed commitments. You have the agility to adjust as you need. And that is so valuable in business. You know, if your needs go up, you take get more. If your needs go down, you get less. If your needs shift, you change it. I mean, what more could you ask for? Yeah, I mean, it really it really checks the the main boxes that that company executives look for, right? I mean, agility goes right to the heart of risk mitigation. It goes right to the heart 
of, of cost optimization or staffing optimization, right, which is directly related to risk. And certainly it comes right to the heart of value creation, right? If there's new services or new business models you need to spin up, you know, do you want to go and deploy a bunch of new hardware and acquire it and get it up and running? Or do you want to just, you know, acquire more capacity on an as a service model and then spin it back down uh, when, you know, when you need to, it, it really touches on all three of those different aspects. So great, great point. Um, yeah, you're spot on with that. That, that is exactly the right way to express it. Yeah, yeah, and, and I guess given the risk mitigation part, that dovetails, I keep using dovetail, that links to myth number five, um, which, is, which is around downtime and outages, right? And so Howard, back to you, our, our myth five is really that the, the cost of downtime is really well documented, really well understood, and most enterprises would believe that they are protected. What what is the reality? I know sometimes I know it's really important. Everybody wants to have a DR plan or a solid backup plan, but in a lot of cases, you do hear that these are things that got checked a while back, and yeah, they work and were covered until something yeah. goes wrong. That, yeah, you exactly said it. Until something goes wrong. So when you look at how companies report things about the resiliency and downtime. They always give it to you in, in, in technological terms. We're 99.999% available. Well, I had one broker dealer company or banking that I worked with, and they were 99.99% available. But that last 0. .0001 that they blew, that was worth $3 trillion overnight. Oh, so wow. the decimal points no longer mattered. Yep. So number one, you, you know, so, so people have data about their downtime, but the data about the downtime, going back to Cosmos point, even on this as a service, doesn't relate to your business outcomes. What do the business outcomes companies want today? They want always on is a business outcome. What's the cost of not being always on? Well, that's what they got to figure out in terms of the marketplace and things like that. So looking at these things in different ways. And you even talk about disaster recovery plans. But if you start going to companies and surveying, when did you last update your disaster recovery plan? They're not done in real time. You know, we'll have another committee meeting. We'll get a team together. We'll update. And by the time they update the plan, the technology has changed or the business situation has changed and a whole bunch of other things have changed. So downtime is interesting to me in a couple of ways. There's no shortage of things that people measure. There's massive shortage of outcomes and impacts, which they, they, they can, can clearly measure. But they're first getting, getting to that now. And that relates to resiliency and all the things that you worry about in a era of, and you know, every, you talk about climate change, you know, climate change clearly is always in the news and is critical even in, in the work I do that's non-technology is understanding that. But the other side of it is there's technology climate change and there's business climate change and all this stuff going on at once with social and everything else going on. So you have multiple kinds of climate change. So how the heck do you start to build a, a downtime and disaster recovery plan and all those dimensions? So going back to Kaz's point, you need to have services that are fluid, that are self-optimizing almost in near, near real time, where the parameters in terms of business outcomes are known, and where even the, the cost structure of those services floats with all the dimensions of, of this climate change. And just to take a side, sideways trip, some of the cloud vendors right now are actively reinventing the mainframe contracts of the 1970s. This will give you a pay-as-you-go service as long as you commit to a certain amount each year and you have to promise you're going to use more. So how the heck is that, you know, flexible? So if you redefine pay-as-you-go as pay-as-you-go, pay it's like going to an all-you-can-eat all you buffet and you go up to the buffet and there's a sign all-you-can-eat, 
the days you can go to a buffet and you start eating foods and someone comes over and says, hey, that's all you can eat. That's what it meant. And they stop you in your tracks. That's what's going on with some of this stuff. So, you know, downtime, I'm, you know, it, yes, it's measured. Does measured means you know the, val the cost of it? No. Are the plans current? Likely not. And what's the world look like going forward? If you're looking at an always on world, how do you engineer everything underneath that, that you're always on? And knowing the value of always on and the incremental cost of not having that level of resiliency. So, you know, it's a, I, I know I introduced all sorts of weird stuff at once, but that, that's the, you know, the downtime is the envelope. You're looking at a service to businesses and stuff like that. So that's just what's going on out there. I need to look at all this stuff from the outside in. And yeah, it's, it's certainly 24 by 7 by 365. And again, this is another really fun and dynamic area for us. You know, I always talk about our data protection as a spectrum, right? An end-to-end -end portfolio of sort of simple and causes favorite word intuitive um, so solutions. Cause, how, how does that play out? There's active cluster, active DR. We've now got the safe mode for ransomware. Uh, really fast, rapid restore. I mean, this, this is an area that we really, really can help. Um, yeah, you know, I think um, as there's more options, uh, the technology becomes more complex and harder to use. And so people don't get the benefit of the options they bought. And I think it's critical as we continue to do new features and pure, as we do new things, that we focus on making sure that things are intuitive and easy to use. Because people don't have the time to study them and to figure out uh, how to use it. and you know, frankly, when things do what's right, you get a better impression of the product, you get more use out of it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, the light switch in my car and the windshield wipers, I don't actually know how to use them, right? I have them set on automatic, which I do when I bought the car, and it does exactly what I want all the time. So I never have to actually remember how do I turn it on and off or how do I adjust it? Um, you know, by getting features right, by getting them, you know, if I push a light switch, guess what? The lights turn on. And every once in a while you go and maybe you're staying in some apartment or a hotel room or a house and the light switches are really confusing. You know, gee, why do I need to hit this one by the door to then enable this one over there to, to, to do something? And it just, you know, it drives you bananas. You waste time figuring it out, and it just doesn't make any sense. When something does what you expect, then it's much easier to use. And I think that's a, a key piece of technology. It's a key responsibility we have as developers of technology to make it more accessible, to make it more intuitive, more obvious, more doing what you want so that people can use all the features and capabilities and get the value of what they bought. Yeah, without the complexity of having to manage or deploy or read 100 page manuals or things like that, it's just, it's just, it's intuitive. The complexity destroys value because it means you don't use it right. Right, when, when again, my car has 100 bells and whistles. When there's a feature in the car that I have to study the manual in order to use, guess what? I don't study the manual. I don't use it. So I paid money for that feature and I don't get any benefit from it. Yeah. And complexity destroys value. And it's as simple as that. So 
I never want to build anything that's complex. I never want to build anything that's hard to use. It isn't obvious and intuitive and simple because complexity just destroys value. That's a great way to summarize the the approach that uh, that we have with with data protection. Well, that that gets us through the uh, the five myths, and you you described them so well with with uh, great background uh, cause to to Howard's point. But I think what people would be wondering, they're listening, is what's next with with all this knowledge, Howard? What what can companies and and government, public sector organizations, you know, go and do what? What do they need to study? What do they need to look at? What can you help with? What can Pure help with? Okay. So, so I mean, there, the, the two semi-weird comments I'll make now, which are based on quotes. First of all, you know, I presented a whole bunch of stuff here based on data. And the interesting yeah. thing about data is technology, although it seems to be around for most of our lifetimes, it's only been around 50 to 70 years, depending how you count. So getting you know, a cohesive model of the economics of technology is doubtful because in a few hundred years, no one has figured out you know, overall economics around the world. Otherwise, we'd all be playing the stock market. So mathematician Sam, Sam Carlin said, the purpose of models is not to fit the data, but to sharpen the questions. And you know, mm. podcasts like this and the questions you're asking are just wonderful because the questions are emanating from trying to say, this is the data, but how does this match to the real world and what you should do? Yeah. Number two, and I'm not a big fan of quotes, but Charles Darwin has a great quote that says, "Not the, and this gives some insights into what companies can do, it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but rather the ones that are most adaptive to change. So the message in this, and I go, maybe it sounds a bit esoteric, but it hits on all the things we talked about today that Cos brought up and you implied in your questioning, is we're entering an era, and I talk about all these dimensions of change, whether we're talking about climate change and technology change, and there's all these changes out there. So the best positioning is to make yourself adaptable to that change, but adaptable is two things. It's not only about cutting costs, it's able, able to embrace and make use of new technology seamlessly as you move forward. So that goes into the models of working with an organization like Pure, where you have this evergreen technology where you're not worried about having to deal with the innovation. The innovation is there and it gets integrated right into it. You're not throwing stuff out in the trash pile and, and redoing everything. That you have an economic model that floats with the times, that you, you have you know, outcome-oriented things. So the short story is what companies should be doing is they should be looking about engineered agility and adaptability based on the volatility they think they're going to face in all the dimensions of change and engineer their infrastructure and the technology that they use to be able to adapt at a, a high enough rate to ensure that they're profitable and successful or serving their constituencies well, versus just saying, gee, I've got cloud. I have one client, I hate to say it, but I asked the CIO of that company, you expect on your tombstone not to be brutal, it's gonna say, he who dies with the most stuff in the cloud wins. That is not the point that, you know, raise your hand, I got 80% of my applications on the cloud. Mm -hmm. So what, what is the outcome? What does it mean to your business, your constituency and everything else? And that's what it's about. So maybe this sounds like I cracked open a fortune cookie and reading stuff, but it's about not the strongest species, not the newest, only technology or the most intelligent, but it's laying for adaptability and agility underneath what you're doing and engineering that to your economic model and performance model and your quality of life model and all the things you have to do. And understanding that data is what that's all about. I don't know if you'd have computers if there was no data. It's an yep. interesting question. So you don't get data right, you don't get 
and data relates to storage, you don't get anything right. So that's a pivotal competency is to understand how it's going to grow, what you're going to use it for, reliability and all the things you need. So that's my sermon for today. Thank you. Oh, it's a good, it's a good chicken and egg kind of question, but uh, I, I do like the summary around, you know, adaptability and, and an open mind, I guess, to, you know, to different approaches and, and uh, you know, ways to solve things and, and a, a, a a bigger perspective on all the, I mean, a lot of the myths tie down to really limitations that I think enterprises can find themselves in, in ways of thinking. Uh, and I've run into many, I got cloud type of folks in my time. Yeah. As well. That's yeah. that's one that's absolutely true. Uh, Cause closing, closing thoughts from you um, around this and thanks for your inputs. Always, always great to have your insights and perspectives, but any closing thoughts relative to Howard's comments or anything in general? Uh, well, okay, so to be honest, Howard said that closing comment so well, it completely <laughs> obviated anything I was going to say, but, um, I, you know, I, I, I think, again, the, the point around agility, which is another word for adaptability, mm. equals risk reduction, right? When you're in business and you run out of money, you're dead. Yep. And when you're agile, you are far less likely to in essence, run out of money. And I, I, I think maintaining that agility is so valuable and people underestimate what it means because when there is a shift, the big risks, the big things, that agility covers you. Excellent. Well, good capstone on that. And with that, I think I'm going to wrap. I want to thank both of you for coming on and for your engaging and spirited discussion. I loved it. I learned a lot as I always do in uh, participating in these and, and uh, Howard, any, anything quick that you want to plug um, for yourself? Where, where folks no, not, nothing I want to plug. There's one thing I'll add is uh, you brought up the chicken and egg. Yeah. My experience, the only one who solved that is unfortunately the late Robin Williams. Uh, I knew him and he claimed that the way he solved that problem, he went to a McDonald's at 11 a.m and ordered a chicken sandwich and egg McMuffin to see which came first, because that's the only time of the day you were able to order both of them as he grew up, so. And with that, that's, I can't, <laughs> think, of a, I can't think of a better way to end the episode than on that uh, callback. So thanks again to both of you. I really appreciate your time. Thanks everybody out there that's uh, listening. Uh, please do tell a friend, share this episode with a colleague, and we will keep the great guests and subjects coming. And with that, we'll wrap for Pure Storage, Howard Rubin, and Cause. This is Rob Ludeman saying, don't look back, something might be gaining on you.